You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Boyd C. Purcell is a National Board Certified Counselor, a licensed professional counselor, an ordained Christian minister, and a Board Certified Chaplain. Boyd has a Bachelor of Science degree in Comprehensive Social Studies, a degree which covers wide-ranging topics such as world European and American history, geography, and political science. Boyd also has a Master of Arts degree in Counseling, a Master of Divinity degree in Biblical Studies, and a Doctor of Philosophy degree in the Integration of Psychology and Theology. Experientially, Dr. Boyd Purcell has, for over 40 years, been in ministry and counseling in agency, clinical, pastoral, psychiatric, hospital, school, substance abuse, private practice, and hospice chaplaincy setting. His first book was entitled Spiritual Terrorism, in which he explores the unique blend of trauma-inducing elements in world religions, all done by examining historical, psychological, and theological perspectives. The integrative approach he takes in spiritual terrorism provides the greatest probability for understanding the complex problem of the use and misuse of religion and for showing how one can be liberated from fear-based religion and healed from its damaging emotions. He has continued his writing in two more books, which touch more on aspects of spiritual terrorism. His second book is titled Christianity Without Insanity, and his third and most recent book is titled Symbolic Fire in the Holy Bible A through Z. In this book, Dr. Purcell gives a thorough background to the use and meaning of fire as a symbol in the Bible. Welcome, Dr. Boyd Purcell, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. It's good to be with you. Well, Dr. Purcell, in reading your work, you really get into a very interesting question, and I can put it to you this way. What is the greatest tragedy in the history of the world? It is changing the glorious truth of Christian universalism, which means Jesus being the Savior of the whole world, not just part of the world, to the doctrine of Jesus saving only a few, and the vast majority being damned to hell forever, which is called eternal conscious torment. That God, who is love, is going to actually torture people in literal fire of hell for all eternity. That characterizes God as the supreme, sadistic, moral monster in the whole universe. That is the greatest tragedy in the church. Well, how do you see this being connected to spiritual abuse and spiritual terrorism? Well, that really is spiritual terrorism. Spiritual abuse may be a milder form of uh, abuse. Spiritual terrorism is the most extreme form of abuse. And that doesn't get any worse than being taught that God, who claims to be love, our loving Heavenly Father, is going to torture humans in hell forever for many things we're taught. And uh, some churches taught as I was growing up something as simple as uh, going to a school dance or to a movie or even watching television or uh, leaving a good deed undone or not doing all to the glory of God. All things are damn you to hell forever. Well, what are some of the life harmful consequences you've seen because of this? 
Well, I've seen many as a licensed professional counselor and doing psychotherapy in a psychiatric hospital on a Christian therapy unit. I saw people who were severely depressed, some who attempted suicide because of that and being so afraid of going to hell. And I pointed out that being taught and browbeaten with fear of hell does not keep people from attempting suicide. I can share more about that at a point if you care to hear that. So there are various forms of abuse. Some churches are better than others. Some are a lot worse, but they all fall short if they, of the glorious truth of the Christian universalism, if they do not characterize Jesus being truly the Savior of the whole world. And in John 1 9, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him, he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I notice there the word sin is singular. So God deals with us, we human beings, corporately as well as individually. So there he's taking away the sin, collective sin of the world. And then when we individually sin, we ask God for forgiveness. God forgives us. So, so God deals with humans, both individually and corporately. And corporately, he is the Savior of the world. And for example, when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, just as all died Adam, even so all live in Christ. It's the same word all in both halves of the same verse. But men will say, well, yeah, 100% died Adam, but as far as those who live in Christ, well, maybe only 10% or less. No, 100%, it means 100% in both those died Adam and those who live in Christ. Well, how does spiritual abuse relate to panic disorder? Well, panic disorder is something people feel very fearful about. And so much so they think there's no hope for them. Things probably only get worse rather than better. And then the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it lists the characteristics or symptoms of uh, panic disorder. And there's something like uh, 14, as there are more than a dozen, and such as a racing heart, uh, nausea, stomach upset, uh, shaking, trembling, and uh, feeling afraid to die. Uh, and then being so terrible that you're afraid that you won't die. I call that the ultimate dilemma in my book, Spiritual Terrorism. The ultimate dilemma being you're afraid to die, and you're, such, you're so miserable you're afraid you won't die. Well, and when people get suicidal, what they're seeking is just a release from this panic that they're in that they can't tolerate anymore. Is that, is that correct? Yes, and I shared that in my book, Spiritual Terrorism, that working in a psychiatric hospital on a Christian therapy unit, uh, the psychiatrist being a Christian, I worked for the psychiatrist doing individual therapy. He did group therapy. And in the group, there might be a total of maybe 15, 20, 25 in the group. And uh, of those, maybe as many as half had attempted suicide. And invariably, someone would ask the psychiatrist if he or she had been successful in taking one's life, would God have damned them to hell forever? And he would always answer that question with a question, saying, well, do you believe that you would have gone to hell had you been successful in taking your life? And uh, 100% of the time, people would answer all those in their attempt suicide that they, weren't th uh, they thought they would go to hell, have gone to hell uh, if they hadn't been successful. And then the next question, he had a follow-up question was, were you thinking about hell at the time you attempted suicide? And 100% of the time, people would answer no, 
They weren't thinking about going to hell. They were thinking about getting out of the hell in which they were living. And that's why they attempted suicide. In your experience, fear of hell did not keep people from attempting suicide. No, it's a lot, that may seem illogical. I've had many people, especially pastors, tell me, well, uh, you got to scare people in hell to keep them from committing suicide. If they believe they'll go to hell, then they certainly won't commit suicide. The opposite is true when you get so miserable, so depressed, and maybe has uh, panic attacks so badly that you're shaking all over and you're afraid you're going to die, but afraid you won't die. Uh, that's when people attempt suicide. When it comes to the doctrine of eternal conscious torment, it's often said that, you know, that this is an understanding that has always been in Christianity that maybe, you know, there's, we've had a, we've had reformations and different splits among different denominations, but that all Christianity is pretty much founded on the idea that Jesus is the one who rescues you from eternal conscious torment. So hasn't the Christian church always believed in eternal punishment? I'm glad you asked that because I hear that time and again, the church has always believed in eternal punishment. Pastors say, I believe what the church has always believed and taught is eternal punishment. The problem is that is not true. Factually, that is not true. I can prove that from uh, church history. And uh, just need to go back and read what the early fathers said. Uh, it was a common belief in the early church in universal salvation. Uh, Jesus taught it. The apostles preached it. And the early church believed it for the first 500 years. But then in the 6th century, Origen uh, was, he's the church's first uh, systematic theologian, greatest theologian. And Emperor Justinian ordered his condemnation in order to be able to exert the greatest control over his subjects in the Roman Empire. That was, he would threaten them with death if they rebelled against him, and then God would torture them in hell forever. So that was the ultimate weapon to keep the subjects of the Roman Empire in subjection. But here's the interesting thing. The facts are that Origen was born in 185. He died in 254 at the age of 69 in full communion. That means good standing with the church, to which he devoted his godly life. And he was condemned, his writings and his memory, in the year 553, which means he had been dead for 299 years before his condemnation. So no, emphatically, the church does not always believe in eternal torment and hell. But in the 6th century, it would be fair to say that the Roman imperial church uh, found it expedient to be able to have a church with one belief in eternal conscious torment for all who were outside of it. And at that time, there was no salvation by faith. There was only salvation through coming into the church and receiving its sacraments. So, so what about this problem then where you can only be saved if you receive the sacraments of the church through, you know, baptism and confession and those types of things. But what if you are a baby and you die before you can have a chance to do those things. What about that? Well, here's one of the real absurdities in the Roman Catholic Church. There are some in Protestantism too, but Catholic Church uh, has taught, still does, that life begins at conception, moment of conception. So that uh, the church is totally opposed to abortion for any reason, even saving a mother's life, because of the innocent life in the womb. But that innocent life has been stamped at the moment of conception with original sin. So if the fertilized egg fails to implant a uterine wall, 
or it is implanted and then is spontaneously aborted for whatever reason, not a medical abortion, but a spontaneous natural abortion, then uh, that innocent life is going to be eternally separated from God at best or actually sent to hell forever, some of the early church beliefs, such as uh, Augustine or Augustine. So uh, it's really said what the church has taught, and uh, it really contradicts itself on the innocent life in the womb and that same innocent life being damned to hell forever because of original sin. So with the uh, teaching of the church about original sin, uh, it really characterizes God as a supreme sadistic moral monster in the whole universe. Well, when the Protestant Reformation came along, Calvin really seemed to appreciate a lot of Augustine's insights about total depravity and original sin. And so Calvinism ended up with a similar issue because they had a doctrine of election, which would seem to exclude the possible salvation of deceased babies that weren't elect. Well, Calvinists believe that Jesus did not die for the sins of the whole world. He died only for the sins of the elect. So uh, they say, well, maybe he died in general for everyone, but he only died efficaciously for the elect. So the elect are the only ones who have the possibility of being saved. And those who are not elect have absolutely no chance of being saved because Jesus didn't die for them. But that is such terrible theology. I talked with Dr. D. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge, Florida. He's now deceased. But I took his evangelism explosion class back over 30 years ago. And um, I talked with him and said, Dr. Kennedy, as far as the unelect, what do you believe about unelect babies who die in the womb either or die uh, in infancy? Do you believe that God would damn unelect babies to hell forever? You know, he's a five-point Calvinist all the way. The logical answer would be yes. He said, well, I like to believe they will be saved, but please do not press me to prove that from Scripture. Well, I could prove it from Scripture that they are saved because uh, George MacDonald, a great writer and uh, a uh, believer in Christian universalism, said that uh, the elect are God's helpers, whom God has sovereignly chosen to help bring about the salvation of all people. The elect are not a uh, favored few. They're only going to be saved. The elect are God's helpers to help bring about the salvation of the whole human family. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the idea of mortal sin. And this is more in some aspects of Catholic theology. I'm not an expert on the Catholic Church or Catholic theology. And I know that there are lots of different ideas that people who are Catholic talk about, but there has been this sense of mortal sin within Catholicism. And if you have, if you died having committed a mortal sin, then you go directly to, you go directly to hell. So it's important to know what is a mortal sin and what isn't a mortal sin and to always keep that in the back of your mind from at least some of the Catholic teaching that I'm aware of. Well, again, you're absolutely right, and that's an excellent question about mortal sins. There are two kinds of sins taught in the Roman Catholic Church. One is mortal, which means it's like a felony that uh, it's going to send you to hell forever. And then there's venal sins. Those are sins that uh, considered less serious. Those would be like misdemeanors that uh, would not send you to hell forever, but would send you to purgatory. 
where you may suffer for a long time. In fact, the Catholic Church even taught that uh, someone might reduce their time in purgatory with their repentance and so on, maybe people praying for them, maybe reduce it by 4,000 years. <laughs> I mean, what's fair about that? God gives people one brief lifetime on earth, generally less than 100 years and then damns them to hell forever, or you might get your sentence in purgatory reduced by 4,000 years. How many would that be? You pay 50, 100,000 years in purgatory because you had one brief lifetime on earth. There's so much inconsistency and so much stupidity. And the thing it is that there's no clear line of demarcation between what's mortal and what's venal. Some of the things that are considered venal are just really asinine in that um, if you are a Roman Catholic couple and you practice birth control, that is considered a mortal sin. Or even, and by the way, 90% of Roman Catholic women in this country practice birth control, in spite of what the church teaches. Uh, they, of course, the church calls that artificial means of birth control. It means a pill or an IUD. Uh, they only, uh, it's okay only to practice uh, rhythm. And uh, you know what they call couples who practice rhythm only as a means of birth control? They call them parents. Uh, so also the children who masturbate, which is something children naturally do growing up, especially boys, when they reach puberty. And uh, the church teaches that masturbation is a mortal sin. Although they've softened that a bit recently, in more recent times too, where they're saying, well, it's a severely disordered di action. Well, masturbation for children is not a severely disordered action. It's something kids do. It's uh, something almost as natural for them as eating and drinking and urinating and defecating. It's part of the process of growing up with all the hormones are raging and getting relief. And if you kids don't masturbate and they're scared to death about that by the church, then uh, if they may end up more likely to have premarital sex, and that's a sin that sends you straight to hell. You have the danger of maybe getting a venereal disease, girl getting pregnant, bringing a life into this world that you can't afford to take care of. There's so many things involved with that and so much idiocy, in my view, that's been taught about homosexuality. Well, in the Protestant world, which I'm more familiar with, at least when I was growing up and around it in the 70s and 80s, there was talk about not only going to hell forever, but about a coming return of Christ and a rapture of the church and a tribulation and people getting the mark of the beast. So there's a lot of fear about having to go through the tribulation if you didn't make the rapture. I wonder if you could talk about all of that for a little bit. I'd be glad to. I heard all about that, and I really was terrorized by that because I heard that the, the mark of the beast is coming and everyone's going to get it unless you are a Christian, and God may rapture you out, so you wouldn't face that. But I was so afraid of that that I've went to a school event, uh, athletic contest or whatever, uh, and they might stamp your hand. So if you wanted to go out for any reason and go to the restroom or something else, then you could get back in without paying again. Well, I always wanted to see that stamp that they're going to put on your hand and be sure it was not something the 666, which is the mark of the beast. <laughs> So uh, it affected all areas of life. And they kept talking then also about the rapture, that uh, the Lord's any moment going to rapture the Christians out. 
if you're lucky enough to get taken up in the rapture. But of course, if you have been saved or if you were saved and you lost your salvation, then you wouldn't be taken up in the rapture. Of course, they're talking about the Lord's coming at any moment. And I remembered I couldn't even look up in a beautiful blue sky and see a nice big fluffy white cloud with thinking, oh my goodness, what happens if the Lord's on that cloud? He's going to split the eastern sky in the clouds of glory. And then into the next few moments, I'm going to be judged as well as the rest of the world. And uh, if I'm not perfect, having accepted Christ and living a perfect life, then I'll be damned to hell forever by God who is love. That just was really terrorizing to me as a child, as a teenager and young adult. Well, could you tell us a little bit about how it was that you were ever able to kind of escape this world of fear-based spiritual terrorism and get to a better understanding of who God is? Well, that's a good question, and it is a long answer. I'll try to make it as short as possible and necessary. But I... The way I would just describe was how I grew up from uh, my adolescence, um, junior high, teenager, all my teen years, and young adult years. But I went away to college right after graduation from high school, and I started attending the same kind of church I'd grown up in because, again, I heard many times taught and preached that there are other churches that will tickle your ears with things you want to hear, like easy believism. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> But then there was a way of death. So you don't want to go to those churches. But after attending the same kind of church for the first semester, it's so horrible, just like what I'd grown up with. I decided I'm not going to go this church and maybe nowhere. But I just started going to another church that was better, but in the same basic kind of denominational belief as the ones which I'd grown up in. So it's better, and I, I thought about why is this church better? Because it's actually a denomination I had attended some before, and which I had been spiritually abused. But I talked with the pastor and found out that he'd grown up Roman Catholic. He'd not grown up in that denomination. So he didn't have all of the legalisms that other preachers have had. But he was not there long. I think he got a promotion to a larger church. And then the pastor came after him, was as bad as any I'd ever heard before. The one thing is he's probably at least 75 pounds overweight. And he never preached on gluttony. But he preached a lot on uh, if you're dancing or if you uh, go to a movie, or if you uh, have a drag on a cigarette, or if you have a glass of wine or beer, you go straight to hell for that. Uh, so uh, this next, the last Sunday that went there, except for the one that followed up with him, was that uh, he preached on Elvis Presley records. And uh, he shook his finger in the congregant's face, and he said, parents, if you let your children listen to those Elvis Presley records, they're going to hell, and you are too. And I thought, oh my goodness, how bad does this get as far as all the legalism? So I didn't like Elvis. I never bought a record that listed Elvis, but my sisters did, and they had Elvis Presley records, loved Elvis. Uh, so I thought, they're not going to hell because they listed Elvis Presley records. So I decided I'm not coming back to this church anymore. And uh, next Sunday, I stayed home in my dorm room in college. And I felt really guilty, like God may damn me in hell forever for not attending church because I heard many times you have to attend church or God sends you to hell for that. Uh, so I thought, what can I do to kind of placate God? So I thought, well, maybe I can listen to a radio program, a religious program on radio in my dorm room, which I did. And it's Dr. Marty Hahn teaching on the difference between law and grace. And that's the first time I heard that. Although I'd heard preachers preach about grace and sing the song Amazing Grace, 
but then they preach on the eternal damnation and how you can lose your salvation. So uh, what he preached really sounded wonderful, but I'd heard growing up that if something sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't true. So I sat down and wrote him a letter and sent him a small donation and asked him to send me uh, everything he'd written on law and grace, salvation by grace, and it scared the believer. Well, he took me seriously. And he, a couple weeks later, I received a big box back and it had a lot of literature in it and I opened it up and dumped it out of my college book and began to sort through uh, and find things, especially on law and, and grace and salvation by grace. And it really sounded wonderful. I read through, I studied, looked up verses in the Bible. And, but I remember them saying in the church that I grew up with that there will be a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. So I took a booklet back to the Elvis Presley preacher and asked him to please show me from the Bible where this is wrong. And he took one look at it and he said, ah, he says that damnable doctrine of salvation by grace and sure the believer, easy believism, he called it. And here's the thing he said. He said, even if I believed that junk, I wouldn't preach it because it's damning men's souls to hell. And I thought, well, be that as it may, can you show me from the Bible where it's wrong? He said, well, he could, and uh, come back next Sunday. You have a message prepared just for me. I did go. He had a message just for me. It's all about salvation by works, the insecurity of the believer, and eternal damnation. So as I sat there, I thought, I'm never coming to this church again, which I didn't. And I started attending a church that I'd asked Dr. DeHaan what church maybe would teach what he was teaching. And he said, American Baptist Church, apparently he was a member of, and I did start there. And then I started hearing all this good news and looking up and studying and uh, coming to believe in salvation by grace and the spirit of the believer. And it really was a beginning of liberation for me from all the spiritual abuse that I've experienced growing up and the spiritual terrorism. Well, so you're at the American in the Baptist Church, in American Baptist Church, and you go to seminary. At what point did you move from salvation being by grace to realizing that it must be for everyone? Well, it took me about 10 years, probably around 20 years old at that time. And so I finished college, got my master's degree in counseling. And then as about 28 or 29, when I went to seminary, and uh, that was a matter to uh, keep on studying and learn more, and especially to be able to study Hebrew and Greek. So I could decide for myself what it said, not having to trust uh, some translation. And I was taught, as far as the King James, that to always and forever read only the King James, because in the last days, again, the last days, they will change the Bible. Well, in some ways, the King James is a good translation. In some ways, it isn't. In some ways, it's a terrible translation. One of the most egregious mistranslations is Matthew 25, 46, in which Jesus said that the, he characterized people as sheep and goats said the sheep would be go to his right, the goats to the left, and the sheep would go into Eonian life and the goats into eternal Eonian punishment. Eonian is an adjectival form of the word eon, and adjective in Greek does what it does in English, it describes. So it doesn't give the length of eon, it gives that which is a characteristic of the eon. And the word that is translated as punishment in the King James is the word kolossan, the Greek word kolossan which is a word from horticulture, meaning to prune plants in order to cause them to grow better. So this would be an eon characterized by spiritual pruning, not eternal punishment. So that's one of the terrible mistranslations in the King James Version. So as I uh, graduated from the seminary then and began to study, and I was called to a church, uh, I was always determined to learn the truth as best I could and then uh, live up to it and preach it and teach it, regardless of the consequences. 
And when I finally discovered through diligent study of the Greek New Testament, Jesus makes metaphor for the purpose of hell, which is to salt people with fire, according to Mark 9, 49, I uh, came to the conclusion that, that cannot be literally true. You can literally salt something with salt. You can literally burn someone with fire, but it's impossible to literally salt anyone or anything with fire. So I concluded that, that is a symbolic language for purification. And then I started looking for translations that would confirm that. And I found the uh, Good News Bible today's English version, which translates it uh, properly as it should be, that everyone will be purified by fire. Uh, so that did it for me. And then uh, the denomination ended up uh, uh, condemning me as a heretic because of believing that. Even if I didn't preach it, they said, if I just believe it, they condemn me as a heretic. So I ended up leaving that denomination, the evangelical denomination, and uh, becoming a Presbyterian minister. And uh, so I've preached the gospel in the Presbyterian Church now for over 30 years. Uh, I'm retired now, I'm going to retire from the Presbyterian Church, so I'm still pastoring part-time. Well, I want to thank you for the writing that you've done. I've really enjoyed reading your books and for your uh, understanding of, of counseling and not just this, not just being a theological discussion, but a discussion about people's real mental health issues, and about being them being able to securely attach to a perfect parental God who loves them and will never abandon them and will never let them go. And uh, so I think that your work has given people a lot of a lot of healing. I just want to say I appreciate that, and I want to encourage people to to take a look at the books that you've read, especially if they're coming out of a, a background of some spiritual uh, terrorism or spiritual abuse. Well, thank you. May I say one more thing? Uh, that Many people will say, I've heard a priest all my life, uh, fear God, fear God, fear God. In the Bible, a lot of places it says to fear God. But that is not morbid fear. Biblical fear means to have reverence for God based on a sense of awe about God not morbid fear. And that is proven by 1 John 4, 4 through 18, where it says the one who fears, that would be morbid fear, is not perfected in love because fear involves torment. Perfect love casts out fear. And that would be reverential awe that we feel for God that casts out all fear and perfects people in God's perfect love. Well, thank you for making that distinction. And uh, God bless you in your continuing ministry and work. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.